My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. For many people in whose lives sea fish play a major role, angling and commercial fishing are often seen as the black and white ends of a spectrum separated by a very large gap. The reality, however, isn't always that simple, with various shades of grey sandwiched in between. One particular example is commercial fishing with baits and lures, and in particular, when like angling, these are used with a rod and reel. In practical terms, angling and commercial rod and line fishing are indistinguishable. Even the keeping of fish is practiced by both camps. The difference lies in what happens to those fish when they reach port, and in the case of the commercials, plus some anglers too if the truth be known, they're sold on, which if all the correct documentation and permits are in place, is a perfectly legitimate approach, and far better for all concerned in that it can be selective in terms of what is kept and what gets to swim away, unlike many other commercial fishing activities. What's often less appreciated by us anglers is that to be viable, commercial rod line fishing needs to be successful at a level most of us can only dream about. So perhaps then it's time to put aside our inherent us and them attitudes and ask the question, what is it that commercial rod line fishing are doing that puts our efforts into the category of also rams? The man I'm going to put that and other topical questions to here is Brixton-based fisherman Dave Pakes, a man who has a great deal of history with both sides of the debate. So why then, in your case, the transition? Good question, Phil. How did a boy that grew up far from the sea in towns and villages that are now Milton Keynes become, as an old-age pensioner, the co-owner, skipper of a 10-metre cheetah catamaran fishing commercially with rod and line out of Brixham? Certainly it wasn't planned, and personally I never saw it coming. It's a convoluted tale, but I suspect, like many other people, fishing's in my blood. As a boy, with my younger brother Bob, we would go fishing down um, a local brook with a bent pin, a bit of bread, a cotton reel and a stick, and we'd catch minnows, sticklebacks, etc. Later, as we got older, we progressed to proper course fishing, catching chub, roach, bream, and the occasional pike in a tributary of the ooze. However, each year we'd visit my mother's parents at Banff in the northeast of Scotland, and here some of my earliest very fond memories are going out with my grandfather in his wooden fifey. We would catch mainly mackerel as he went round and round shoals of fish, I always remember him chewing on a rope of tobacco and regaling us with some very exciting tales of his days as a commercial fisherman fishing on sailing trawlers up as far afield as Iceland. He would tell us of the huge skate that he caught and other large fish. At that time, my brother and I would fish off the local harbour walls, catching flounders, dab, occasional codling and of course quite a few coalfish. I always remember being very envious um, getting up in the morning and seeing a sink full of cod that my grandfather, my father and some of my uncles had caught the previous evening. Unfortunately as kids we were never allowed out on those trips. Anyway I joined the Metropolitan Police after leaving school and there I was happily able to enjoy my fishing, sea angling we used to go on regular charter trips, venues such as Deal. 
However, in um, 1972, my first child had been born and I decided I didn't want to remain in London. And I looked around the country to see where I could transfer as a police officer. The counties that came to mind were Norfolk, Dorset and Devon and Cornwall. And I have to admit that fishing potential was one of the key factors in my choices. Devon and Cornwall was the first force to interview me and accept me, and happily I moved down here with my family in 1972, and I've been fishing down here ever since. The police service, just like the fire service and other public services, has always had a strong sporting side, and I was quickly able to join fellow officers in regular charter trips out of venues such as Plymouth, Brixham, Minehead and others. When I was serving in South Devon, we had regular charters on some famous vessels such as our Unity, but our most regular trips then were with a uh, skipper called Ernie Frad on the Argonaut out of Brixham. This was a fishing trawler used for charter fishing occasionally. Fishing was a lot different then. The boats were slow, and it took two to three hours either way to get out to the wrecks we fished that nowadays I'd regard as inshore wrecks. The fishing was different in that whilst we still caught the big pollock that we get today, we would find that ling were very plentiful and some were of very large size, you know, 30 pound plus. Strangely, cod weren't that numerous then and were much rarer than they are today. Of course, red bream, some of very good size, were um, prolific then, and as much a pest as pouting are today. You only had to go out to wrecks such as the destroyer Pennylam, which is only, um, what, four or five miles off start point to fill the boat in night time at all. It's sad to see the bream die out, even the black bream that I used to catch off some rough ground to the east of Dartmouth had disappeared. Ling declined, but um, I'm told that disease, as much as anything, was responsible for the Ling demise. I must say, I'm very pleased now to see that the Ling stocks are recovering. Last year, I actually caught some on wrecks um, that I've never caught them on before in my angling career. And Black Bream have made a, a good comeback. We've even caught one or two Red Bream out in mid-channel now, which is good to see. Anyway, while serving at Torquay in the early 70s, I met a fellow officer, Kim, who is still one of my best friends today. Kim, at that time, had a heavy wooden 15-foot clinker dinghy, and we'd spend hours fishing together, mainly for bass, but we would spend quite a bit of time anchored or drifting for flatfish, mainly dab, with occasional place or coddling off what were then very clearly identifiable banks off Hope's Nose Torquay. Strangely, with the bad weather we've been experiencing currently, I took my current vessel and my son over to Hope's Nose the other day. The banks we used to fish uh, have long, long since disappeared, probably due to scalloping activity. And needless to say, we caught nothing of note the other day, just a few small whiting. Our bass fishing at the time, 30, 40 years ago, was normally, in the early part of the year, drifting rock marks, such as the Allstone off Torquay, with live prawns in the early part of the year. We used to get small pollock and wrasse, and just the occasional bass. This was regularly followed 
in probably May, June, when we'd start rowing the local beaches, such as the the one off Paynton. Quite often rowing all night, um, trolling sand deals. And we used to get some quite nice fish that way. Used to take it in turns to row. Quite hard work. And the autumn would see us catching small live pouting for bait, going out to inshore reefs such as the Mudstone off Brixham or Tucker's Rock off Torquay. This was when we'd often get the biggest fish of the year. But I have to say, a double, i.e. one over ten pound, would be a rarity even then. Uh, you know, despite rumours to the contrary, you had to put in a lot of hard work and effort, even in those uh, days, to catch bass. I think those in organisations such as bass must view the past through their own rose-tinted spectacles. It was never that easy. Some good memories. Uh, one of the most frightening for me, I can always remember springing a plank in the bow of the clinker while we were fishing Tucker's Rock, and we had to make it back to Torquay Harbour with daylight clearly visible through the bow. We sat together in the stern to keep the bow high, but every wave we hit, a huge spray of water would come in. I must say the bailer was <laughs> much in evidence that day. I can't think that we would have caught what I would today regard as commercial quantities of bass, but rarely in those days. It was possible to catch um, larger numbers when we would go over to the Teen Estuary and drift with live sand eel in what today is the prohibited bass nursery area. You could then easily catch 50 to 60 bass, probably more sometimes in a day, mostly small fish. And of course there were very few regulations on either the commercial fishing industry or the recreational sector at that time. And I'm reliably informed that bass would then sell at about £1.20 a kilo to local Chinese outlets. Anyway, when Kim eventually sold his clinker, I bought my first boat, a 16-foot old longliner, which was uh, based firstly in Torquay Harbour and then later on the Dart at Dittisham. Again, I could get out to the skerries, but um, we also enjoyed some good bass fishing in the estuary. I used to get a few thornbacks as well. <laughs> the thing I can remember was that the degree of regret was that the long liner was not self-draining. Whilst I was working, my good wife would regularly have to go down to Torquay Harbour and bail the boat out. And while I was on the dart, I had to row over to Dittisham from Greenaway. And uh, I can remember on occasions the wind and tide being so strong that I'd get swept back down the river and had to be rescued and towed back up to Greenaway on a couple of occasions. Those were good times, but of course the Dart is also now a bass nursery area. In that era, monofilament gill netting was a growing commercial practice, and soon we were unable to get onto our regular bass marks for nets. Needless to say, the stocks declined dramatically, which was what led the authorities to introduce the estuary bass nursery areas. In my opinion, those measures did a lot to restore the bass stocks at the time, albeit it took several years for the stocks to recover. Funnily enough, as I was later to find, um, wearing my game fishing hat, it's brought some unforeseen consequences. 
as I fish for sea trout these days in the tidal whirlpool at Totnes, it's quite disheartening as somebody practising salmon and sea trout conservation to see <laughs> bass taking the endangered smolts as they descend down the river. And again, if you were to ask me, the sea trout and indeed the mullet that frequent there are far better sport on a fly rod than the bass, which I personally find quite disappointing. Anyway, being in the police, I was able to partake in some of the competitive aspects of the sport of sea angling, as organised by the Police Athletic Association. There were a series of regional qualifiers leading to a national final held at various venues in the UK each year. I was very pleased to be selected and fish for the Devon and Cornwall Constabulary team, and I've got quite a full trophy cabinet of awards. Yeah, I remember winning the national final up at Seaham in Northumberland one year. I can also recall that on one occasion I was the main organiser of the national final when it was held at Plymouth, and I was very pleased to work on the organising committee at the time with the respected angling journalist Mike Millman, Tom Matchett from the British Conga Club, and Ray Parsons, a Plymouth charter skipper of Sunlit Waters fame. So when and how did your involvement with commercial rod and line fishing finally come about? In the late 1970s, fate determined a course that uh, led directly to my current commercial fishing status. My pal Kim and I taught ourselves to fly fish on the streams of Dartmoor. In 1980, we both joined the Dart Angling Association, where we progressed through the various categories of membership into sea trout and eventually salmon angling. At the same time, we both competed in parallel regional and national police events, police fly fishing events, similar to sea angling. And I can recall a strange experience when we won the national um, police final in Northern Ireland, where we were protected by armed units as we fished. Outside the police service, I became involved in the national fly fishing scene, I can remember organising the national championships on Dartmoor and I've also competed in a number of um, national river finals myself. In due course, in the late 80s, I was elected to the committee of the Dart Angling Association, which has been very influential in my life. This association was formed in 1895 to provide affordable fishing to both locals and visitors alike. It controlled on very insecure short-term leases, nine miles or so of the prime salmon and sea trout water on the beautiful lower dart, including, as I said, the tidal whirlpool at Totnes. At that time, membership and promotion was very much through a who-you-knew basis. The fishing, um, much like game fishing elsewhere in the country, was in decline, and membership numbers were falling. In 1989, I was elected to be the secretary of the association with the help of other like-minded fishermen, such as my good friend and pal David Grove, who at the time was the association treasurer and is a well-respected England international fly fisherman and worldwide guide, who just happens to be the partner in uh, my current vessel, Goldfish. Anyway, set, we together set about the task of improving the lot of fishermen on the river. Um, that uh, necessity took me into conservation issues and some wrangles with the Environment Agency and DEFRA. 
The Dart's a particularly unusual river in that its problems stem not just from the routine problems such as water abstraction and pollution that affect most rivers, but the Dart had a major industry washing sheep fleeces on its banks at Buckfast. These discharged their effluent into the river, and of course this effluent contained the gender-bending chemicals such as organophosphates and synthetic pyrethroids. Suffice to say, in a long fight in which the association successfully sued the water authority on one occasion, the river has been cleaned up and the discharge no longer enters the river. At the same time, I was leading a campaign to purchase our fishing rights outright and secure the future of the association. It's quite hairy. Um, It involved borrowing up to a quarter of a million on occasions. As I say, this has secured the future of the association for all time, and I could go on for ages talking about the conservation measures we took, such as running our own hatchery, habitat rehabilitation work on the spawning streams, together with the difficult task of buying out netting interests on the estuary. It's a good time, and I served as secretary for 13 years, and later for another three as chairman. Now I'm retired to the back benches as a life member, still fishing the river when it's too rough to get out to sea. Again, great times in my angling career, but it was through that course that I met some some of the real characters who've influenced my belated entry into commercial fishing. Principal amongst these was a guy called Rob Dart. He was a lifelong commercial fisherman out of Dartmouth. Although he'd been a trawlerman at one stage, it was in the years of my acquaintance with him, entirely a crab fisherman. He never thought that his chequered past history and background would allow him membership of the association and move into that elitist sport of salmon angling. By this time, I'd moved the association to much more egalitarian and democratic lines. I welcomed the novice game fisherman into the association and over the years helped him to develop his game fishing skills, sharing many great experiences, particularly sea trout fishing in the tidal weirpool, where Rob was always um, raiding my uh, fly box uh, to get a few flies to catch some fish. Again, our tales of salmon fishing, <laughs> particularly with uh, Rob scaling trees and hooking suicidal salmon before he'd even thought about how he was going to land them, would fill several more interviews, and I'll leave them out of here. Probably by now we're in the late 90s. I would often join Rob on his old crabber, Damselfly, a 30-foot versatility, and we'd fish commercially for bass. There are a number of marks off Dartmouth, going round Start Point to Prawl, into Lanarkham. These were good times, and we had some good bass catches. We'd use lures occasionally, but um, we mainly fished live bait. This would occasionally be prawn that we'd gather in a landing net swept along the weed on our moorings, but more normally we'd use sand eel. At that time I had ownership of our sand eel trawl, and we'd fish this off damselfly, trawling for eels off the Slapton line, normally off the street gate end, favoured by the nudists. (laughs) I can remember nearly catching one large naked lady, who as we passed her with our boat, entered the sea to swim, nearly ending up in the trawl towing behind us. God, we saw some sights down there. I won't go into them. 
Uh, I suspect we used to upset a few of the local shore fishermen for a while, who probably thought we were trawling up their fish as we towed close to the beach. But if the truth be known, we rarely caught much other than sand eels. A few mullet, the occasional bass, and a few small dabs. And as I used to grab them to take home for tea, we used to get cuttlefish and a few spider crabs. And we could be a bit hairy at times, this trawling. And a word of caution to anybody who thinks they're going to catch their own bait. It can be quite dangerous. You can often uh, snag up, even in shore, on the big boulders. I can recall that damselfly used to draw about a metre and a half, and Rob would be up in the bow waving for me to get even closer in two metres or so of water. You'd often see the inner otterboard nearly on the beach, clearly in view, partly out of the water. Just a word on these eels, there are several different types of sand eel. I know in Guernsey they call them different names based on their colour. Reds, greens, blues. Anyway, the desired eels that we were looking for off Slapton, we christened Tyson eels. They were far thicker and stronger than the eels that we'd normally buy from Timmouth, that served most of the angling needs off South Devon. Anyway, it was through Rob that I became firm friends with another Dartmouth crab skipper, John Butler. A real character who skippered the offshore, 32 Nicky V, for its owner Chris Venmore. Chris is the ex-chairman of Devon Sea Fisheries Committee, and I suspect it was probably responsible in due course in 2005, leading to me receiving an invite. Um, to join the Devon Sea Fisheries Committee as a ministerial appointee, a role I enjoyed until the committee became an IFCA in April 2011. At that time, I declined to apply for a committee position on the IFCA, entirely for the reason that I suspect the government has too many demands on the IFCAs, just like many other public services, such as the Environment Agency, they're under-resourced from central government to meet the uh, tasks demanded of them. Anyway, I digress. John was a real character, as well as regularly giving me some hermit crabs to use on my private trips out to the Skerries. He'd often give me an invitation to join him on some commercial wrecking trips, either for Pollock, cod in the spring, or bass in the summer. John was a truly amazing skipper, as well as being a natural and gifted angler. The electronics on Nicky V were um, best described as fairly basic, with no good plotter. John relied on decker numbers entirely, and how he could so consistently work out his wreck positioning for the drift, just on mental arithmetic and the numbers alone, still amazes me. I learnt a lot about the sea from John and Rob, from which I shall be forever grateful. Throughout all this time, I had a number of private angling vessels. After the Orkney Longliner, my next vessel was a 24-foot uh, Tamar 2000, which I owned in partnership with another good friend and ex-police officer, Paul Bright. Paul's an entrepreneurial individual who at one time set up a company selling lures that he'd import from abroad. This was in the very early stages of lure fishing in the UK. At that time we made contact um, with a guy called Dave Kiddy, whose family to this day own a company selling fishing tackle, including the Sidewinder range of lures. 
Paul and I had some input into the design of uh, certain of these lures and I can recognise quite a few in the current Sidewinder range that bear our stamp. I still liaise regularly with Dave to this very day. The Tamar was a great sea boat but uh, slow, about seven and a half knots maximum. Whilst we did fish wrecks off her occasionally, um, most of our time was spent inshore bassing or on the skerries for flatfish. I retired from the police service as a superintendent in 1995, and round about that time Paul and I were approached by three ex-fire officers. Terry Bunnell, the then chairman of the Dart Angling Association, Bill Sumner, the vice-chairman of the Dart Angling Association, and his son Pete, another ex-fire officer, with whom I still fish to this day. Anyway, we were invited to join them in partnership on a faster vessel, an offshore 25 Red Dwarf. Now, these three were experienced wreck fishermen, and at one time in the early days had been wreck netting off a lock-in 33 that they owned. Their tales of um, huge catches made at that time uh, are actually quite scary. Anyway, with Red Dwarf, we soon found ourselves in the difficult position that I'm sure affects many other recreational anglers fishing off South Devon. We were just too successful. There is only so much fish that you and your family and friends can eat. The temptation was there to sell the fish illegally. As an ex-police officer, I could not do this, and a lot of tension grew in the partnership, as I was insistent that the vessel must be registered and licensed. In the end, this partnership broke down over that issue, with Paul and I leaving. The others, I'm pleased to say, went on to eventually register and license Red Dwarf, moving on eventually to buy and fit out another Locking 33 for Monty still morsed by me today and is skippered by Pete who remains my power and fishing buddy. Paul and I downsized to an Orkney Dangler 20 real value. By that time Paul had moved on to become a real repairer and tackle dealer, hence the name of the boat. Um, we still fish successfully mainly inshore for bass and flatfish out of Dartmouth just occasional sorties out to the wrecks. But it was in 2005, I think, when having dinner with Rob Dart and his wife, she suggested that Rob was getting too old for the rigours of commercial crab fishing and put forward the suggestion that, as we were already doing some limited amount of bassing, we should get a proper angling boat and start commercial fishing with rod and line in earnest. Rob, Paul and myself then sold our existing vessel and set about finding a suitable boat and license. Now for anybody entering or thinking about entering the commercial fishing world, it's not an easy task to get set up. I often hear recreational sea anglers quoting that commercial vessels got their licenses for free. Whilst that was true when the licenses were first issued in 1983, it's not the case since. You have to now buy an existing licence from what is really a declining fishing fleet, 
probably due to the fact that for many years DEFRA had a policy of a percentage penalty on transfer or aggravation as licences that has led to a reduction in, in an increasing shortage of suitable licences and of course has led in part to the reduction in fleet numbers. You have to be mindful too that these licences do not come cheap. Um, you can expect to pay £30,000 or more for a large licence to fit a suitable angling vessel. As a partnership, we immediately had to rule out anything over 10 metres, as we would be fishing for many species that are subject of TAC TAC quota, and that would mean renting, leasing or buying all your quota, assuming there was any available. It's just far too problematic. That's a pity, for many of the better angling vessels used for charter angling are in fact over 10 metres. So instead we had to look for a good under 10 metre vessel and licence, where we would fish against the restrictive MMO administered pool catch limit scheme. Again, it's not easy, as recreational anglers may not realise, just how difficult it is to find a licence with the fairly large horsepower that's uh, converted to kilowatts on the licence that's needed to power a fast angling vessel. The licensing rules prohibit the aggregation of kilowatts from smaller licences to anything over 150 kilowatts, that's about 183 horsepower. That does make it difficult to get a suitable licence to fit the vessel that you would want. Anyway, eventually I tracked down a licence that would permit us to have engine power of 270 horse. That does limit your choice even further if you look at what engines are in most of the charter vessels today. It's quite clear that the current licensing system has been designed to prevent the escalation of large, powerful, under 10 metre trawlers. Unfortunately, there does nothing at all for the more sustainable rod and line commercial fishing activity, which are actually <laughs> inhibited by the licensing process. Just as an example, when we were first starting this out, I'd agreed a very good price to buy an existing monohull charter vessel that was powered by a Caterpillar 416 horsepower engine. Over a period of several months, I was unable to find a suitable license to fit that vessel, and we had to pull out of that good deal, and that set back our plans by several months. Quite by chance, on one of our many visits to ports um, around the region to view vessels, we were in Poole, Dorset. There we first saw a yellow 9.95 metre cheetah cat that took our eye. Some old guys were on board and we found out that the vessel was run by a charity and was specifically designed for taking disabled people on estuary trips up to Wareham. Anyway, these nice old guys offered to take us out on a trial trip to show how the cheetah performed. At the end of that trip, as well as being suitably impressed, we made a donation to the charity and immediately went over to Ventnor on the Isle of Wight, where we immediately placed an order for a 9.95 cheetah cat to be powered by twin 135 Honda outboards. We then had to wait patiently for delivery of what was to be my first commercial vessel, Dart Angler DH4, that we operated out of Kingswear on the Dart. 
And whilst we were waiting for delivery, Sean Strevens of the excellent team at Cheetah was kind enough to lend us a commercially registered 23-foot Noosa cap, uh, which filled in for a few months. I can still remember taking Rob out to a wreck just 12 miles off start. That still fishes well to this day, if the wreck netters are not on it. At that time, Rob was quite inexperienced in rod and line wreck fishing, and I can still see his face as he struggled with the power dives of the high-team pollock that we were getting. He's improved a lot since then, though. We had some uh, very successful years fishing on Dart Angler as a partnership, but I was personally disappointed that we were not visiting the Channel Isles with regularity, which was one of my main desires, as I love the fishing over there. I can recall our only trip to Guernsey, where we caught quite a few turbot and brill, as well as bream, bass and an odd tote that we um, obviously released. We stayed in a four-star hotel, ate in top restaurants, and had a great time. At the end of the day, we'd paid for all the fuel, all the expenses in accommodation and food, and we still made a profit of £600 for the three days. However, Rob was not as keen as uh, myself to return pointing out that three separate day trips could have resulted in a profit of £600 or so for each of the days. Unlike myself and Paul with our police pensions, Rob relied on an income from the vessel. The growing tension this caused between us was playing on his mind, and whilst we were still friends, we agreed to go our separate ways and for Rob to take a bigger share of Dart Angler. Fairly immediately afterwards, I was approached by other friends, again from that influential Dart Angling Association, to get a new vessel and fish with them. Another order for a 9.9-metre cheetah catamaran based on their 10.2-metre range was placed on a 12-month build slot. This time was not so successful in acquiring a large licence, only actually tracing one of 158 kilowatts after several months of looking. This licence with 5 kilowatt minor mismatch allowed me to again place twin Honda 135 engines derated to just under 110 horsepower on the vessel. Uh, while this vessel, Goldfish, was being built, I spent some happy months crewing for my former partner Pete on Full Monty, enjoying several trips to Guernsey in the process. Pete was, and still is, probably the highest earner in South Devon Rod and Line commercials. He works very hard, often put into sea at obscene hours, to ensure he can be four hours out at dawn. He also uses computerised jiggers um, that we don't. These are efficient at times, and also give good information about the height of taking fish above the wreck. The speed of retrieve needed and does allow you to try different lure patterns and sizes. Anyway, in April 2011, my partner and I took delivery of our new vessel, Goldfish, BM4. We've fished it successfully ever since. This time I based Goldfish in Brixham, alongside Full Monty. At Kingswear, my previous berth, um, whilst I had ready access to fuel, obviously petrol, 
I had to transfer all ice, had to be relayed from Brixham. The fish court would have to be lifted um, by hand up to a suitable vehicle and then transferred and unloaded at Brixham Fish Market. At Brixham, I cannot easily get fuel, but the advantages of readily available ice and the ease of unloading the fish straight onto the market more than made up for the disadvantage. With twin 300-litre-plus fuel tanks, I could always get two or three trips um, per fuel load. Anyway, so there in a long tail is how I came to be a commercial fisherman from a recreational background. Trust I haven't bored you too much in the process, but there might be a few tips there for anyone starting out on the process. There's not a lot of difference between commercial rod and line fishing and recreational fishing, as I might expand upon in a while. I've helped quite a few other recreational anglers down that route. Commercial rod and line fishing has been one of the few growth areas in an otherwise uh, declining UK commercial fleet, and quite a good many of them come from the recreational fishing uh, background. Because up to the point of putting your fish onto the market, what you as a commercial fisherman and we as recreational fishermen do is virtually indistinguishable, going out as often as you do, and for species so close to most anglers' hearts, it could be argued that you have one of the best jobs in the world. Best job in the world, did you say, Phil? (laughs) Not sure after three or four days of getting up at um, three to four in the morning, fishing through till eight, nine at night, three or four days on the trot. Hmm, Doesn't always seem possibly like the best job then. But you're right, really. We do this because we enjoy it. I've written the contract for a number of partnerships over the years. Always think it's best to have a, a contract. But I always put in that contract that after the safety aspects, that the enjoyment of fishing is paramount. More recently, my son Tom, who left university, has decided to join me on the boat. He's now a qualified skipper in his own right, and in fact is learning the trade off me. I think he wants to go into it full-time in the future. But the fact that he now needs to earn some money does place extra pressure on me. Pressure? Yeah. Um, There's a huge amount of responsibility on my shoulders as a senior partner, and in fact the managing partner. This is a business. We have something like 200,000 tied up in the boat and the licence. You have to make a return realistically on that sort of money. There are numerous aspects to consider. Obviously the first and the key one is safety at all times. We don't go to sea in anything over the 5-6 really. Um, And in fact I prefer it a lot less than that for enjoyment's sake. I have to make sure at all times the boat is fully equipped and serviceable for fishing. Constantly aware of the financial implications. On a long day, I'm not probably bassing, but if I'm going somewhere a longer day, is 50 to 60 miles out, I'm going to burn something like 300 litres of fuel. Now that's expensive, even allowing for the fact that we are VAT registered. 
we can reclaim a fuel duty currently uh, something like 57.95 pence per litre. Uh, that's still at 300 litres, £180 worth a day. So yeah, there are pressures on you. And of course, those pressures really come down at the end of the day to, well, yes, we must catch fish. That's not always possible. I have to admit that very rarely we actually lose money on a day, but I'm glad to say that is a rare event. But it's a constant pressure. Having decided and say where we're going, firstly, one of our major considerations will be the rec netters. I constantly look at AIS to see where known vessels are, what area they're um, working, which wrecks they're fishing. I have personal contact with some of the netters who will tell me where they are. But quite frankly, from my perspective, and I suspect that of the charter skippers, there are too many of them um, operating in an uncontrolled fashion on uh, too many of the more productive wrecks. And, of course, uh, nobody likes fishing alongside a net. Occasionally we have to do so. Politically, I am trying to work to achieve a better way. I look at the way in the Sea Fisheries Committee we managed trawling and potting interests with zones. I personally cannot see why we can't do that with wreck netting. I have a, an idea that could leave possibly areas of the sea clear of next fallow for a season or other areas that um, are all pursuits, some that are netting only, some that are angling only. You could put this on a rolling program so that we all get to visit them all in due course. I'm sure that somewhere there is a solution to that. Anyway, that's one of the issues that we have to address. I like to fish wrecks alone if we can, and I suspect every fisherman would say the same. There are reasons for it in my rationale. I'm quite convinced that fish are spooked both by the sound of the engines, constant activity from fishermen above them, and probably by sonar sounds, particularly the bass. So when we go to a wreck, um, <laughs> if I'm on my own, I'm happy. There are boats that I'll happily share with as well, often fellow commercials who know how to behave properly on the wreck. Quite frankly, I do throw my hands up in horror when I see a charter boat approaching. That probably means 10 to 12 rods going down, and all sorts of activities going on that might just spook the fish. Almost all of these will keep their engines running, whereas every time we go over a wreck, we cut the engines and run in silent mode. On top of that, we obviously have recreational anglers coming out. Quite frankly, I think some of them are illegal anglers because they're there regularly fishing alongside us to similar methods and uh, catching quite a lot of fish, which cannot all be for personal consumption. There's good and bad amongst them. I'm often happy to give advice if I can, if anybody asks me for it. But sometimes their boat handling skills are not of the best. You know, we try, when we're fishing, to go round the fish, keep off the wreck on our return journey. You see others steaming straight back up the drift, others cutting in in front of you. To be honest, that actually applies to one or two of my fellow commercials as well, who I often fall out with on the basis that they have no manners whatsoever on the wreck. It's a difficult thing, and it adds to the pressure of fishing, and probably the enjoyment of the day. You'll often see me, if I see there's a crowd going off somewhere else, I'll find my own spot. 
Of course, one of the other great pressures is the weather. This season, this year, has been awful. I know that since the start of December, and we're nearly at the end of February, I've actually only put to sea twice. Okay, I missed a couple of days when I could have gone for family reasons, but there's no way that's going to make a living. We've lost over the last three months. Yes, we've used the opportunity to do a refit, get the boat spruced up, got all our tackle ready, but uh, no, times like that make it difficult. People might think you come into this and make a lot of money. Yeah, you can at times, but uh, (laughs) there are times you do not, and you have to be prepared for those. Of course, another pressure is that of quota. Okay, you're doing this interview on the basis that I'm a bass fisherman. Yes, I am. I tend to specialise in bass. But at the same time, certain seasons of the year, I'm likely to be pollock fishing or cod fishing. And we have to be aware of quota issues. Okay, bass is not yet subject to quota. I do have views on that. I know that there are a lot of political considerations around at the moment some of which I share, um, quite happily live with, a seasonal closure. Yes, I'd ban all pair trawling. I think some of the arguments on um, size limitation are actually fallacious. Quite frankly, could be dangerous for a lot of small uh, bass fishermen, commercial bass fishermen, and (coughs) indeed recreational fishermen that rely on catching small bass that tend to be inshore. You're just going to force them further out to catch these bigger fish that organisations like bass seem to think are essential. However, it's over the years been quite concerning to me some of the quota issues. Pollock is the mainstay of commercial inshore rod and line vessels. I've known occasions where there's actually, um, due to mismanagement by DEFRA, been a zero allocation of Pollock in uh, December one year. For many years, we struggled with cod quota, often down to something like 50 kilos a month if we were lucky. At that time, there was huge amounts of cod on some of our wrecks. I can recall one day going out to a patch of four wrecks, about 28 mile out. I knew from past experience that there were good stocks of cod on just two of these wrecks. I could see um, charter vessels during the day go out and fish them, while I had to stand off and fish a wreck that only really produced small pollock. Um, It was very galling at the time. I have been very active working with the MMO, with other skippers, in a regional quota advisory meeting, and hopefully we've got things a bit better arranged now. There is a little bit more cod quota available. But these are issues that we have to work uh, around all the time, and yeah, I suspect that might come for bass too. I, I wouldn't be too unhappy with that in terms of conservation, particularly if it can be set at a reasonable level to stop the big hauls, um, the pair trawling hauls, but allow small commercials like ourselves to actually make a living at it. I know, Phil, you want to know why we specialise in bass. There's a number of reasons. One is I actually enjoy catching them, uh, and I suspect that's probably (laughs) one of the main rationales. They're a beautiful-looking fish. Actually, they're not the most sporting. Um, You get a better fight off a big pollock or even a big cod than you probably do off many of the bass that we catch. And yeah, we do catch quite a few decent bass, so we do know what we're talking about there. But 
One of the major considerations for me is that if I'm pollocking these days, I have to go quite large distances a lot of the time. In fact, we wouldn't even look at a wreck under 12 miles unless the sea was particularly bad. I'm more likely to be looking at wrecks 30, 40, 50, sometimes even 60, 70 miles off. So there are obvious cost factors and implications in that. Bass fishing, I tend to be a little bit more inshore. Mostly these days I do wreck bass fishing. The inshore marks, whilst they do produce a few fish, they tend to be smaller fish. So we tend to specialise more in wreck fishing for bass. But these wrecks um, are not so far off, whereas I'm steaming probably two hours at speed for all my pollock trips. I'm probably only steaming an hour in my current vessel. That makes a hell of a difference in terms of the cost of a day. Then we have to look at the value of the fish as well. It really annoys me. Um, sort of two years ago, one January, we were catching pollock. It was making £5 a kilo. With the stupid mismanagement you see from the MMO these days, allowing such huge quantities of um, the breeding pollock to be taken, spawning pollock that is, huge hauls coming in. The price, I can recall, dropped from £5 a kilo down to a pound a kilo in a week. I really struggle in the commercial world who do not seem to realise that less can actually equal more in the pocket. Funny enough, we've had similar experiences with bass recently. I'll come to that in a second. Yeah, so I'm steaming less distance, therefore saving on fuel. It's harder to locate bass and it's harder to, to make a commercial day of it. But the prices are so good. I mean, we've been getting last year nearly £20 on occasions for larger bass, £20 a kilo. Certainly the average would not fall much below £10 a kilo, and generally falling somewhere in between, depending on size. So you can see that you don't need that many bass to make a good day of it. I said earlier about the drop in the price of Pollock. Well, last year, one week I was catching bass that I was selling at £14 a kilo. One of the um, pelagic trawlers that nets normally for sprat and more occasionally if he can get them because they're more lucrative, anchovy, he hit upon a shoal of bass. Well, in fact, the son hit upon them one day and the father in another vessel for the next two days also accidentally, in inverted commas, hit upon the same shoals. Between them, they landed something like 15 tonne of bass in three days. And that's an awful lot of bass. It would keep most of the rod and line commercial fleet going for the entire summer. But of course, it had an impact on price. Whereas we were getting, as I say, £14 a kilo one week, the next, within days, it was down to £4 a kilo. Too much uh, glut of fish at the time. So these are sort of issues that you know you're constantly aware of when you're out there fishing. On a couple of occasions, Phil, I've touched on charter vessels. Can I just say that, actually, I'm a registered, fully coded charter vessel myself. We rarely, to be honest, take out charter parties. I personally, as I get older, don't want to fish with people I don't know who may be um, <laughs> somebody I don't actually like. Currently, I'm able to go with the crew that I know and that we get on well together. We have done some charters, and we'll probably do a few in the future, provided the price is right. I can recall probably our best charter was when we were approached by Honda to do an advert, a TV advert, 
for their engines. If you've seen it, it was, I think, for Channel 4 or 5. They wanted, uh, in the end, to go night fishing for squid using illuminated lures. Not something we do. I do catch squid, and in fact we occasionally fish specifically for them using squid jigs in the normally the autumn months in the daytime. But they wanted to do, or the TV producer wanted to do this at night, something he'd obviously seen abroad more than anything. And um, he thought it would be nice and photogenic to have illuminated lures coming up through the water. Yeah, all very pretty. Quite frankly, it was um, a scary experience. I do know that you can catch a few squid at that time of year off Princess Pier Torquay. There are, in fact, loads of nets out at that time, and you see loads of pot dams down. For me, taking the boat out at night in Torbay with all of these dams around us, quite hairy. I had to allow my apprentice to do the interviews on TV. My then apprentice, he since left. <laughs> he seemed to enjoy it personally. Um, it was a film crew, and I wouldn't say I'll get on well with them. <laughs> yeah, not as practical as I was have wished, but lucrative nonetheless. So far, we've concentrated on the how and why you got into commercial rod and line fishing, which is a sustainable and selective approach. What anglers would also like to know, I'm sure, is how you achieve consistency, because what you do can have a direct carryover to what the rest of us would like to be doing, and hopefully improve our catch rates too. Yeah, why are we more consistently uh, successful probably than the average angler? The key, quite frankly, is a mix of experience and probably discipline and control on the vessel go out on a charter vessel you'll see all types of line tackle going down on ours you won't find that the boat is run hopefully like clockwork invariably i take the wheel and we'll take the boat over the wreck on most of the drifts one of the others normally my son these days will be looking after the fish that's another issue that probably sets us aside from recreational fishermen is the way we care for our fish on landing, they're immediately bled, immediately placed into slush ice, and later transferred to ice. We pride ourselves on producing premium quality fish for the market. It does fetch a higher price, quite frankly, again, not as much as it should, but it does set us aside for those uh, recreationals probably not as fortunate as us to carry the facilities. But the issue of tackle is important. There are a number of issues here that we actually always fish with our own choice of rod, and in fact reel. Generally lighter than people might think, always of high quality, depending on your own degree of um, <laughs> tartiness really, how much you want to spend. But the key thing is we'll all be fishing the same lines, and same strength of line, we'll all be fishing the same weights we'll all be fishing probably identical lengths of trace. At the start of the day, say, if there's three rods on board, and quite frankly three is enough if you're bassing, you'll see the three of us probably start out with a different method on each. One may be fishing a dexter wedge, one a live bait, and one a lure. If we're all deciding we're going on lures, then you'll probably find three different lures. It's all a case of quickly deciding what is the most effective pattern at the time. 
So yeah, the boat fishes. We go down in rote to make sure we don't tangle. You can't afford to be tangling and messing about. That's why I say three rods is probably preferable to a charter boat. Yeah, it gives us an edge. And to be honest, you can't be experienced, and that has to be gained. Locating the fish is never easy. Bass are like will-o'-the-wisps. They can be there one minute and gone the next. I have something like 800 marks put into my plotters as waypoints, um, each mark in wrecks or fishing locations. On top of that, those that we fish will have the whole wreck plotted out with a series of marks. You then need to know where to fish on a particular wreck, and it varies. I can think of one wreck um, where you have to fish right under the bow, another wreck where you have to fish right on the top, that's on the highest point of the wreck. I can recall one day where we had to be on a run that probably was no more than four to five metres wide if you were going to successfully catch on that day. You can't beat that. I would advise any recreational angler to study their wrecks, uh, rely on a few and get to know them well and get to know how they fish at a particular time, at a particular state of the tide, particular seasons. It doesn't always follow it will be the same, but it's worth doing that. Make a written record of it because your memory, no matter how good, is infallible. The wrecks do vary. I've got a few wrecks, uh, I can think of one, a landing craft. I go to it and I say to the lads when we're getting there, we'll probably only get one bass off this, but it will be a good one. I can go to other wrecks that I know will be probably a mix of small fish, others that will produce bigger fish. Again, can't give too many secrets away, but yeah, it is a case of learning this. And as I say, you learn over a period of time. And that's what I'm trying to pass on to my son at the moment. The availability of food is always important. I really love to see bass as pollock fishing as well, coughing up sprats that way. They're normally going to be in a feeding mood at some stage. Bass are affected, as I say, by tide, particularly so inshore on the inshore marks. You often find that the key taking time is probably just the start of the tide or, or the end of the tide. But one thing I have come to realise over the time is that bass, when they do start feeding heavily, you'll find them getting into virtually a feeding frenzy. But that can stop as quickly as it can start. It may only last 45 minutes to an hour at various stages of the tide. Wrecks, well, no hard and fast rule. I, I think there's probably bass on virtually every wreck in Lime Bay at certain stages of the year. Yes, they're seasonal. We tend to start round about April, May, and can go on into December. And when they do eventually head off, we do the bass over winter. There's a lot of scientific study done on that. None of it as thorough, perhaps, as it might be, and I suspect there are changes. I mean, a lot of our bass have been tracked out to the Bublondel off the west coast of Guernsey, where they are caught in huge numbers. I think you once did an interview with Dougal Lane. You must have asked him about that 28 ton he had in a, a trawl one day there. Him and a pear trawl. Yeah, yeah, 28 ton. That's a huge haul. God knows how that can be sustainable for very long. But unfortunately, um, more and more of the larger commercials, particularly Scottish vessels and the French vessels, will find the mid-channel. I found bass out into the herd deep, 120 metres of water one day. We 
have had them on particular wrecks in 70, 80 metres, but generally when we're fishing for them, we're probably not in anything more than about 50 to 60 metres, and often a lot shallower than that. The type of wreck is important. There's a lot of information on wrecks on some of the dive sites now, and I've studied these over the years. I don't think that many of the wrecks that are upside down fish particularly well. I prefer a broken wreck, and sometimes the more broken the better. There are exceptions to that. Nothing is written in tablets of stone. There's one large upturned wreck we fish that has a couple of rips in the hole. You have to know where they are, and you have to go through that every time. If you miss that particular area, you won't catch many bass. So I say, each wreck is an individual. You've got to learn how it fishes, uh, and that takes time. And what about your take on tactics, lure selection and the like? <laughs> Don't know how much of that I can allow. Right, let's start um, with inshore bassing. As you know, bass like tide. Off South Devon we have tidal races such as the Start Race. Further along you have the prolific Portland Race. We don't fish there and in fact the tactics you would use there are slightly different, more akin to some of the wreck fishing techniques using the Portland Rig that I'll describe later. Now we do fish the Start Race and over the years I've enjoyed many, many years fishing some of the inshore rock marks um, that are quite prolific here. Our tactics, well firstly tackle. You don't need anything more than a good spinning rod and a fixable reel. We load ours always with braid and a fairly short monofilament rubbing leader. To this a lot will depend on the tide and the depth of water that we're fishing and the speed of the drift. Out of preference, we'd like just to put on a swivel, a length of probably 15-pound fluorocarbon, sometimes 18, um, about the length of the rod, and couple this then to the hook. So basically you're free-lining other than the swivel. It's a very enjoyable method of fishing. In the race and places like that, you're probably going to need a small bull weight and a bead above the swivel. The size of the bull weight will again depend on the conditions, but probably no more even for some of the deeper marks than an ounce. The hook will normally be a very sharp Sakuma-sized pattern, probably a 3.0 or 4.0, again depending on the size of the um, sand eel that we would be using for bait. If we're using prawn, we'd probably substitute that hook for a small treble, which is one point of the hook going through a segment of the prawn near the tail. And again, if um, we happen to be live pout fishing, small pout, three to four inches, we'd probably again go for a slightly bigger treble. That's it. It's simple tackle and it's sporting. I've got a selection of rods, spinning rods, that I use for the purpose. One is a nine-foot salmon spinning rod made on a northwestern blank. My preferred rod at the minute is a Snowby Deep Blue. I like Shimano Bait Runner reels. They suit my purposes. 
Normally you're going to be fishing for fairly small bass, <laughs> but occasionally a bigger one will come along. I can recall um, one day before, in fact, I went commercial, I was out with my granddaughter and my son. We were fishing a fairly prolific east bank off um, Dartmouth and caught a few bass before I decided to go right inshore, virtually touching the rocky shoreline to the east of Dartmouth. My granddaughter by then had got a bit, she was only eight, she got a little bit bored and she said she's going to watch the telly and in fact she meant the sounder in the uh, vessel. So I grabbed the rod off her. Only a short while later, whilst freelining, um, totally freelining, a prawn as it happened, I picked up a really lovely bass for £11.3. That's one of the few bass that I can really remember the fight on, on a free line, shallow water. Had some good slashing runs across the surface before we landed that one. That was a memorable fish. Right, let's move on to wreck fishing, which is where we do most of our bass fishing these days. As I think I've said before, all the wrecks in um, Lime Bay at some stage will hold bass. The depth of water can vary um, from about 20 metres out to nearly 60. I've already said, I think, that inshore the bait is almost uh, certainly going to involve live bait. Sand eels work inshore, but once you get over about 30 to 35 metres, they become less effective. And out of preference, I would prefer to be fishing live mackerel. But right, there are three different options that we use for our bass fishing. And at the start of the day, you'll probably find one of the three of us on each of the techniques, just to work out what's going best at that particular time and day. Let's start with Dexter Wedge fishing because that's where the tackle would probably be fairly similar to that I've already described for inshore work. I like a spinning rod. Again, I use a Snowby Deep Blue. And again, out of preference, I prefer to use a fixed ball reel. We use Dexters in the range from 45 gram up to 200 gram. My particular preference is for 110 gram, but again, it will all depend on the conditions. The Dexter wedge can be tied directly to the monofilament leader. It's a simple setup. My belief is that with a fixed ball reel and spinning rod, you can get better action out of the lure. And the technique is simple. It's just a cast slightly up tied towards the wreck and retrieve normally at a fairly fast space. The Bass can fall off these lures with regularity and it can be a bit annoying. On occasions, if the bass are in a feeding frenzy, we may, a couple of metres up the line, attach the link swivel and a lure, and sometimes the bass will actually take the lure above the dexter. And that's a very simple and very successful technique, and probably when the bass are really on the feed, accounts for most of our um, big catches. The next technique is um, that I'll be using throughout the winter months for Pollock. It's um, fishing with a lure, a flying collar, and a reasonably long trace. Fishing on the wrecks where I'm expecting big bass, I'd actually be using about 30 pound um, monofilament line now on the trace. My particular preferences, and I have to be a bit careful here as I um, work closely with um, Dave Kiddy, who produces the Sidewinder range, Alex McDonald from um, 
what used to be Swift Tackle, now Rico Leisure in Weymouth, and Snowby, where Russell Weston, the managing director, is a close friend and fishing pal. And we, in fact, use all of um, their range of lures. For the sidewinders, many years ago, we helped develop the four-inch minnow pattern, the one with the yellow spot rather than the greyer one, albeit both are successful. These lures work, um, and we use them a lot when the fish are on, uh, when the bass are on sprat, particularly when the tide flow is low. Their action appears slightly better at that time. Most of the time, though, you'll see me fishing either totally white, the bloodhead white, or a blue and white six-inch sand eel for preference. That's a sidewinder sand eel. On the redgill range, I personally prefer to use these when the tide flow is over one knot. And again, something white and blue, redgill, evos are quite good. And last year, for the first time, we used some of the snowby lures, the six-inch stinger pattern. The white one again being my personal favourite. The technique is just as for pollock fishing, flying collar and a long trace, drop to the bottom and wound up. Again, on the day, we'll try different speeds until we find the one that works. Generally, I prefer to fish just one lure, but sometimes, again, if the fish are feeding really heavily, we will put a second lure on, and that might be a four-inch um, white sidewinder above a six-inch one, or possibly a little blue and white shad. It's difficult to tell what days the lures are going to work on. As I say, each method has its day. But our third method is probably the one we use more than any other and is certainly the most successful, and indeed is the one that accounts for most of the bigger fish. That is the fishing of live bait. Again, same rod and reel, your own preference. I use a 12-pound um, class Suveran for most of my bassing. We like fast reels and we use again out of preference probably the Avet range the uh, jx or lx depending on whether you want a wide or narrow spool again 30 pound braid down to a monofilament leader and fishing live bait we always use a portland rig we keep it as simple as possible i'm sure everybody knows what a portland rig but basically it's a piece of probably slightly stronger nylon between two swivels and running on that line you have another swivel with a bead. Your hook length is tied to that swivel and to the bottom swivel we normally put on a rotten bottom down to whatever size lead we're using on the day. Live baiting, even with three of us on board, I'm not looking for long traces. We personally find a trace about nine foot of... Um, fluorocarbon, probably again 21, 22 pound, we prefer just in case we get the really big fish. To this we use a very sharp treble. The best bait for bass is undoubtedly scad, a live scad if you can get them, and for us that normally means as the autumn draws on. The rest of the time we'll be trying catching first and keeping them alive some mackerel. Now, people talk in terms of joey mackerel being necessary for this. That's not true. A very small bass will, in fact, take a mackerel much larger than itself, and I'm quite happy to use mackerel in the pound class. 
Yes, small joeys at times, but I can assure you that to get the bigger bass, probably the bigger bait works. We always hook the mackerel down through the top lip with the two other hooks of the treble protruding. Occasionally we've tried circle hooks. I don't think they're quite as efficient, albeit it's rather nice because the trebles always gut hook the bass, whereas with the circle, um, when they are hooked, they're normally hooked in the scissors. Again, it's a case of drop to the bottom, feel the bottom, and just come up a couple of turns, and you have to work out on the day what sort of height you need to come. And as you drift, your bait will be rising in the water, so you have to keep dropping down to keep in touch with the bottom. And on the day, you'll find out what's working. So that's it. That's our three techniques. We'll chop and change them during the day. As I say, we experiment as a team to decide what is working best. And um, good luck to anybody that's listening to this and going bass fishing. You don't always need to get the live bait, and you can have a lot of fun just on the Dexters and on lures. In fact, last year, our, our most successful day, I think we had somewhere near 130 bass off a wreck in Lime Bay, were all caught on either lures or Dexters. That day we didn't need live bait. We fished alongside a recreational boat who wasn't catching when we arrived, but soon saw what we were doing and followed our lead down the drift. I can also recall he didn't quite realise uh, or pick up on the fact that the tide had turned and it was some little while before he followed us out to the other side when um, we were still catching in a slightly different location on the other side of the wreck. But we fished consistently that day. I think it was a good day from our point of view. We made about £2,500. The recreational guys, a couple of them in their small boat, they must have had 70 bass now. I've got my suspicions but I won't say too much on here. But that was a cracking day. It's the sort of day we look for. You can chase bass um, all day and end up with very little. Or sometimes you can find them, and you can end up with days like that. It's not as reliable as pollock fishing. It is a gamble, but we enjoy it. I think that's probably all you're going to get out of me on um, tactics, Phil. I won't say too much about the wrecks. People will find their own. But uh, do bear in mind that virtually every wreck will, at some stage, have bass on it. Some will be um, holding bigger bass, some will be holding the smaller bass. Probably that's why we go bass fishing. It's the challenge of it that excites us. Hope you found that useful. And good luck to all who are fishing, be they recreational or commercial. Useful might be something of an understatement, on top of which, having a masterclass such as this is also good for the confidence, which is equally important to keep on plugging away with every ounce of concentration and effort you can muster. Now obviously, I have both of my feet very firmly rooted in the recreational side of fishing, but I'm realistic enough to appreciate that commercial fishing not only will continue, but must continue to crop whatever the sea has to offer so long as it's done in a sustainable way, which some branches of commercial fishing, such as scallop dredging and other bottom dragging techniques, miserably fail to do. My local supermarket, which just happens to be in Asda, makes a big deal about the fact that all of its cod, haddock and tuna are line caught. If it was down to me, all commercial fishing would have to be done using rod and line. That way, at least, the problem with discards and dead out of quarter catches being dumped simply couldn't arise. Small fish and non-marketable species could also be returned quickly and in good health, 
which not only makes sense in terms of sustainability, but also prevents the market from becoming swamped, keeping the effort-to-cost ratio in a healthy state of balance. Where you might not agree with me is that while bass currently have no total allowable catch, or TAC assigned to them, and because of their supposed or probably overstated importance of inshore and offshore fishing, as with the striped bass fishing along the east coast of the United States, this should be made a recreational species only, with close seasons, slot limits and bag restrictions. But that probably is another debate for another time. Winding up this particular interview now, I'd like to offer a very big thank you to Dave Pakes for putting himself forward as an emissary from the other side to talk through his take on the subject with us here today. 